I, th I think that the, in, in soft robotics, we are in desperate need, this is like one of the big challenges in this area, for more effective, universal, hopefully universal, but at least more flexible, compliant, you know, and more adaptable actuation systems. And it's just so exciting to watch nature and see that in almost every organism that is not a plant, but actually quite a few plants as well, have got soft muscles in them and they're contractile. And yet we don't have that kind of universal thing in robotics except the motor. And that's completely different, right? It's a rotational system. So where is our really effective, scalable, because you know, biological muscle can go from tiny scale to a huge scale, you know, from a from a, a really small insect, like the smallest flying wasp, which is so small, I don't think you can hardly see it, to a blue whale. They all use basically the same technologies for, for actuation. Well, we, we don't have that. And wouldn't it be really cool if we've got that? The motor is like the closest we've got in conventional robots, but we don't have that in, in ours. But at the same time, I can also say that there is room in this environment, in this research field, for lots of different types of muscles, actuators, sensors, materials, and so on. So I don't think there's like a challenge. We're not doing anything wrong. I'm just praying that over the next you know, 20, 30 years or so, we can produce a universal, scalable actuation system. Or call it a muscle if you like, the ideal of an artificial muscle that will be used ubiquitously everywhere. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. First of all, congratulations for the new paper. And I think it's very interesting, the actuator design, the concept in micro-air vehicles. So if you can tell us about what are the challenges of the actuation when it comes to a real application like micro-air vehicles? What are the challenges? Try and question here. Uh, okay, Marwa, that's, uh, that's a lot of questions in there. Let me just tease those out a little bit. I suppose the first thing is, what is the work that uh, we at Bristol, uh, in, in the Bristol Soft Lab, have been developing? And this is work that was conducted by researchers Tim Helps and Chris Romero, who, who did a, just an amazing job putting together the, the designs for this uh, flying, flapping uh, robot system and with uh, Majid Takavi who's now at Imperial College in London and what we've done here is to take some of our technology that we developed a few years ago called a dielectric a dielectrophoretic liquid zipping actuator so we could talk about those a little bit later which is the core fundamental actuation technology and we've applied them to flapping wings and it, it seems very simple to say 
I'll take an actuation technology in one area and then I'll apply it to another area and make flapping wings. But actually, it's, it's quite difficult because the challenges that we're trying to meet here are to make flapping wings for autonomous vehicles, which are going to be really small. And so therefore, you, you break, break, broach this challenge of making micro air vehicles. And air vehicles are difficult enough because of fluid dynamics. And of course, people have been working on this for more than 100 years. Uh, but when you go to micro air vehicles, things become uh, perhaps even more interesting and even more challenging. So when you take uh, an actuator technology, which what, what, what's actuator technology is there for, for moving things, and then you want to put it into a micro air vehicle, there are extra constraints for this moving thing, this, this transducer that turns, in our case, electrical energy into mechanical energy. And they involve questions of scaling. They involve questions of materials. They also still question the, un the underlying uh, physics of the system. And uh, they don't exist without the wing part, which is the fluid dynamics, the aerodynamics. And because we're working with very small wings and very small target microwave vehicles, it becomes more complex and you look at unsteady flows and you're looking at the kind of behavior that insects operate in, you know, kind of the regimes that they operate in. So perhaps we, we could touch upon that, I, I guess, in a minute. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also interesting, I think, when a paper and the performance that maybe surpassed what really nature has. And, uh, and I'm curious if you can dig deep in the, the performance, uh, how you can yeah, advance beyond what we have already, like insects and uh, flapping wings, for example. Yeah, so, so we've, we've made some advances here. And of course, lots of groups around the world are making advances in, in microwave vehicles. And our particular niche in this which gets us into this area is, is the actuation. So let me just describe the actuation system, the what we consider artificial muscles behind this. And one, one way to look at this is just to step back a little bit and to look at uh, wings, for example, um, and, and say that if I were, as a human, to pretend to have a wing, I'd put my arm out to my side and I'd flap it up and down. And to get my arm to move flap up and down, I have to use muscles in my shoulder and in my back and on my chest. And that's what nature does. It, it uses those muscles in the insects and birds to, to pull those wings up and down. And so they are linear actuators. If we, we use that word, actuator, something that, that pulls, generates um, attention. And they are linear because they are muscles. And of course, lots of work in engineering is, is done looking at rotational systems, motors, and, and the allied gearboxes behind them. But we felt that that doesn't really meet the need for soft robotics. It doesn't really meet the need for these air vehicles. So we've been focusing very much on linear actuation, kind of muscle-like activation. So to do that, we use electrostatics. And there are several classes of electrostatic actuation that uh, people are looking at. Um, one of them, classically, has is, is been used for the last you know, 15, 20 years, uh, our dielectric elastic, uh, elastomers, DEAs. And they work on the principle that you have two compliant electrodes and they come together under high voltage and they squash an elastic material. And then you, when you switch off the uh, potential, then the two electrodes just are pushed apart again because of the stored elastic energy in that material. OK, so we, we, we know that that can be used. The trouble is there you've got an elastomer and that is using some of your energy. Um, there is a limit to how you might apply that in some cases. 
So what we did was we, we took the elastomer out of the equation and we considered, going back to first principles, of just two plate uh, conductors and then you apply electric field between those two and then they, they, they come together. And we know that when you've got two charged plates and then they come together, the, the forces between those two plates increases uh, very significantly as you as you come come towards a zero gap. Okay, and that uh, I think has has been quoted by Feynman as like one of the, the the strongest forces that you could use. And I think that's I I misquote him, but you know that's a very good uh, focus that electrostatics at those kind of very small scales is really important. So the kind of general principle is that if you can uh, if you can harness electrostatics at a small scale then you can use it. The trouble is we want our artificial muscles, our actuators, the things, the output from our actuators to be at the large scale. So there's a little bit of a mix between those two where we, we find there's a gap. So what we said is that instead of putting our electrodes parallel to each other, why not bring one end of it, of these electrodes, closer together? So you, you immediately generate a really high force at that point where they're almost touching, but they're not touching, right? Because if they touch, they short circuit. And because you're generating that really high force there, those electrodes will want to come together. Now, in this in this kind of situation, we don't have anything between them. We just have air, maybe, or vacuum, and there is a force pulling them together. And if if they come together at that point, but they don't quite touch, you put a little insulator between the two. What will happen then is that as you let this structure move, it will start to fold together, and we call it zipping. You know, it, what it happens is at the closest point, it comes together at high force, and then that kind of area moves up the structure and this thing zips together like a, a zipping clothing you know it's a zip and it and it closes so what you can do there is you can take a tiny actuation and you can turn it into a really large actuation because you're you're pulling things together from a small closing junction into this really big thing that closes it's um it's kind of it's it's kind of neat now that works well and people have been using this kind of structure in mems devices for a while and they they typically operate in vacuum or in air over really small scales. But again, that's that challenge of the physics works very well at a tiny scale, but we want things that are bigger, which is really annoying <laughs> for the physics. So what we did was we realized that if you could just put a high dielectric material between those two and then let that material be mobile, then you'd actually increase the force. And you can do that. So what we do is at the point where these no longer parallel electrodes, but they're kind of just angled together so that they've got a, a point where they almost touch. If we put a tiny drop of dielectric material in there, then that increases the forces locally at that point. And then you get this thing zipping together much more strongly. And the great thing about this is that all sorts of fun physics come together. We've got electrostatics, which works really well, especially with a high dielectric material. We've got, um, and so, so we end up increasing the force at that zipping point. And that extends through the whole actuation uh, movement. But also you've got this extra force called dielectrophoresis, which pulls that liquid into that zipping point and means that it stays at the right place. And it also means that you don't need lots of this liquid. You only need a tiny amount because it, it actually moves with the zipping point. OK, so all of this description just says that we can take simple electrostatics and we can turn it from a tiny MEMS based kind of technology into something that you could use for something bigger. And of course, today we're talking about microwave vehicles, but they're still much bigger than MEMS. And ultimately, we want to make artificial muscle structures, which are big enough to you know, put on people's bodies or make large robots from them. So having made this zipping structure, which has got liquid inside it, and we call it you know, dielectrophoretic liquid zipping, DLZ, 
um, what can we do with it? So we've made structures which contract linearly and uh, they um, expand. Um, we've made metamaterials which are kind of three-dimensional and they kind of contract. You can imagine a, like a Rubik's cube that starts off as a cube and then zhoof, completely compresses down to basically a piece of paper. And then, of course, you switch off the voltage and this thing expands out again. And what we then did was Tim and Chris and Tim specifically said, well, could we use this for a flapping wing? Because the materials that we're using are two very compliant electrode plates. And if you look closely at one of them and you keep one still and you move the other, it looks a little bit like a flapping wing or part of a flapping wing. So you have this great idea of, of sandwiching one of these electrodes between two fixed electrodes where you can change the polarity and you can change the charges and the one electrode in the middle becomes mobile. And so what happens is you, you kind of have a V structure, which is at the shoulder, if you want, of your insect, you know, where, where you've defined this, this, this muscle, this flapping wing. And then you, you have a mobile electrode in the middle, which flaps between these, this kind of V-shaped electrodes. So we got this ability then to, to take very simple electrostatics, scale it up, put it into a wing structure, and then flap a wing. And there's one great added advantage to this, and that is that there is nothing between the energy generation system, which is the muscles, these kind of zipping structures, and the wing itself. Typically, if you're making a microwave vehicle, you're using an actuator, maybe a piezo actuator, something like that. It's got a very small stroke, so you need some gearing system to turn that into enough flapping, you know, a flapping strain, you know, flapping movement for, for, the, for the wing to flap. So here what we've got is a, a system that not only scales electrostatics up into a, you know, a relatively large, in this case, you know, centimeter scale, but of course we can make them smaller, uh, flapping system, but it also gets rid of any gearing between the two, which makes the system more efficient. So I think we're, what we're doing here is, is again, we're playing on the, the physics working for us and also the structure working for us because we, we don't have the gears. And uh, hooray, I really like it when we can say we don't have motors because they've gone out the window. We've got this kind of linear actuator or this electrostatic actuator and we've got rid of the gearbox. Hooray, <laughs> it's just direct connection. That's what insects use, right? They have a relatively direct connection between the muscles in their body and their flapping wings. So I suppose all of that basically describes how we, we, we took a relatively simple, when you look at it, technology and turn it into a flapping wing. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Maybe I want to ask you here about the material part and the and actuation and the architecture or the shape or, or, the, or the material. Which one is significant when it comes to scaling or coming up with interesting design, the material part or architecture? Which is interesting to you or significant? Well, but that's the thing with, with soft robotics and, and these kind of structures, you, you can't have just materials on its own without the design. You can't have the design without the materials. We're working out the scales where material stiffness and geometry are so carefully balanced. It's, it's not like we have a steel girder and it doesn't matter whether it's really big or really small. It's still got basically infinite stiffness in practical applications. Actually, we are... We're dealing with these compliant materials, so we need them to bend, and we need them to bend in a certain way dynamically. So that is a delicate balance between the geometry and the materials. And an example of that really is in, is in the shape of the electrodes against which that central flapping electrode presses or is attracted. 
So you can imagine, just imagine that you have a, a thin ruler and then, and then you're going to twang the ruler. We do this at school, right? We go, we hold a ruler in our hand, or we put it on the desk and we go twang and it goes boing backwards and forwards, right? So you've just got a vibrating beam. And that vibrating beam and the, the, the movement that it generates will depend on its stiffness. Of course it does. And that's kind of what a flapping wing is, right? It's a, it's a resonating, hopefully at resonance because it makes it more efficient. Uh, it's a resonating flapping structure. In our case, because the root is fixed, it is actually like a, a, a flapping ruler. So we've got this energized flapping ruler backwards, flapping backwards and forwards. And as it as it bends, it bends in a characteristic shape. But if you put a heavier wing onto this electrode, or if you make the electrode out of something softer, like a thinner piece of material, then it bends more. It bends in a you know, different way, in a, in a tighter curvature. If it bends in a tighter curvature, it means then you have to make your your counter electrodes, the bits that are pulling and pushing, well, pulling, a different shape. So your, your question is really interesting. What is, what is the most important part here? Is it materials or is it structure? It's both. You kind of need to, to challenge those two. And what we're doing now at the moment with our, with our research is to try to make this system smaller, uh, an order of magnitude smaller. And to do that, we do have to look at the materials and the structure again, probably change the shape and also change the materials. Yeah, maybe I want to ask you your views on actuation when it comes to the robotics field. This is a technique you mentioned, I think, very interesting. I find it very interesting. But when you have the scope of the actuation, is it something you disagree with? And you think we have to, maybe, you think we have to focus more in this direction of actuation, this cost of actuation. And maybe you disagree with this vision. Uh, that's that's a really good question. What? Do, do, do I think there is something wrong with the way we approach actuation or is there some challenges that I feel we should address in actuation? I, I think I'm going to answer that question. I feel like that's, that's kind of, kind of where, I think that's kind of where we're going. I'm not sure. Um, so I, I, I think that the, in, in soft robotics, we are in desperate need. This is like one of the big challenges in this area for more effective, universal, hopefully universal, but at least more flexible, compliant, you know, and more adaptable actuation systems. And it's just so exciting to watch nature and see that in almost every organism that is not plant, but actually quite a few plants as well, have got soft muscles in them and they're contractile. And yet we don't have that kind of universal thing in robotics except the motor. And that's completely different, right? It's a rotational system. So where is our really effective scalable, because you know, biological muscle can go from tiny scale to a huge scale, you know, from, a, from a, a really small insect, like the smallest flying wasp, which is so small, I don't think you can hardly see it, to a blue whale. They all use basically the same technologies for, for actuation. And we, we don't have that. And wouldn't it be really cool if we've got that? The motor is like the closest we've got in conventional robots, but we don't have that in, in ours. But at the same time, I can also say that there is room in this environment, in this research field, for lots of different types of muscles, actuators, sensors, materials, and so on. So I don't think there's like a challenge. We're not doing anything wrong. I'm just praying that over the next you know, 20, 30 years or so, we can produce a universal, scalable actuation system or call it a muscle if you like the ideal of an artificial muscle that will be used ubiquitously everywhere we see it a lot in science fiction you know they will say 
here's here's my science fiction robot and and it's animated or it's it's cgi and behind that you know there's some really cool actuation technology whatever it is don't know what it is but it's working there and it's working in another thing in that same film or so on and and they've got it but we don't quite have it yet Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to ask you, there's something was counterintuitive on Visor Writing in this paper, or maybe if you have something you would like to mention, was counterintuitive to your intuition when it comes to the performance or the design. Do you have this scenario happen maybe in the paper or maybe you can recall from any past experiences here? Yeah, so there are some interesting things about um, this, this particular structure, which are kind of counterintuitive. Um, we, we found that there is a, a, a kind of delicate, delicate interplay, if going into the detail, delicate interplay between the electric fields in, in the various pieces of material that we, we use to construct this thing. And you'd, you'd, you'd hope that you'd have a really simple rule that says that, for example, if you have got an electric field and then you've got a dielectric material between the two, you can store more energy in that in that field, in that structure, effectively a capacitor if you have a higher dielectric. And that's exactly what you know, capacitor law says. Absolutely fine. And then you would think, think that, with that being the case, you'd get more actuation out of such a system. But you've got this interesting interplay with electrostatics quite often in that you do want to increase energy storage, but you are increasing typically the electric field, which means you're more likely to have breakdown. So there's this real delicate interplay with these structures and it works in ours as well, where it was kind of counterintuitive to me to look at this and think, oh yeah, we, we want to have the most dielectric constant in of, of our material to get the highest energy density in there. And yet Tim would turn around to me and say, yeah, that's great, but you know what? You can't do that because it'll break down. So you need to have something here which has got a higher breakdown strength and that may have a lower dielectric constant therefore it stores lower energy and it, and actually results in less energy coming out but it means you can realize it so this kind of notion that physics says this is ideal and we can get this power out of our muscles and yet we can't quite go there because another bit of physics says that that's not going to work because it's going to break so you have to rely upon the other bit of physics as your limitation and that's that's a little bit of a surprise to me sometimes you know what can you do? Your physics is physics. You just have to deal with it. Um, but be, the trade-off between those two is really interesting. But it's still been a, it's, we've still, with those constraints, been able to make these artificial muscles, which are have the energy density, power density of, uh, of mammalian and insect muscle, which is pretty good, right? If you can make energy and power density of, of your actuator as good as insect muscle, then you should be able to make something which is as good as an insect that's like the ultimate goal, right? In terms of flying or capability or size or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to ask you in the way of the design and thinking, because in, in the paper, for example, you mentioned how we can surpass the performance, uh, what already have an insight. And I want to ask you when it comes to design space, what is the first thing you look for that we already look for by inspiration, but seeing that you can surpass this stage and coming up with something beyond what we know. What's the first thing in the design space you look for? she's a goal here you're absolutely right there because the design space quite often for us engineers is quite small um, and, and we would say we're working in this area of a particular type of you know, a flapping actuator or an actuator that drives a flapping wing and we will then evaluate it and we will produce a metric that says that 
this muscle in this configuration is as good as insect muscle. And it works in that small design space. But if you were to go and look at this bigger space of you know, all actuation in robotics, you wouldn't be able to achieve that, right? That's kind of typical thing of whereby you can say that your actuator can produce really, really big strains. Right? So you can move out a meter. Or you could say that my actuator could lift a thousand times its own mass. But typically, and we, we have the same challenge as well, you can't do the two at the same time. You can't use the same actuator for lifting something a thousand times its own weight, one meter. It just can't do it. And yet that's the kind of thing that the nature in its muscles can do. I'm just giving you as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to, thanks to close the end, I have three questions here, but I want to go for the failure and redundancy in zooming actuation. Can you tell us more about the design here for redundancy and would it fail exactly? Well, if you, if you take the, the actuators that, that Tim and Chris have uh, developed here, these kind of flapping wing actuators, they, they have got failure. Uh, they're, they're pretty good. You know, um, we've found that these we've got to what millions of cycles, which is good. I, I, you know, if you think of an insect, it's going to flap its wings for many, many tens of millions of cycles during its lifetime, depending, right? Dep some insects don't live very long, right? Some of them only live 24 hours or, or so, which is a real shame. But many flies are, are, or insects are flapping their, their wings for, for many, many more cycles than that. At least I, I think I think they are. I have to go and check on that. Um, but the failure modes for ours are... Uh, there's electrostatics and as I said before about you know the material fatigues electrically as well as mechanically which is very interesting and so you get breakdown of the materials of course you've got a, a flapping wing so your materials should be elastic and efficient and resilient I think that's a really important word where you get as much energy out of the system as you put in because any wasted energy has got to be it's got to go into somewhere and it comes in, it goes into heat or it goes into, you know, causing some kind of damage in the material. So the flapping electrodes that we're using here are steel strips. They are spring steel. And spring steel has got a very good resilience, right? You, you can hit it and it, it oscillates a lot. It, it's got a lot of return energy. It's got very little losses. Hence, we use them for springs. Um, but they, they may still break. Typically, ours don't break. What is a challenge, though, for flapping wing insects of, of you know, or flapping insects? No, sorry, I shouldn't say that insects. I keep thinking of that. The flapping wing robots that we're, we're looking at here, which are a little bit bigger than insects, is that the wings are very difficult to design. So insects and others, organisms that are running at this very small scale with this unsteady flow, they, they have to use quite dynamic wing pitching actions. Right? You may have seen the videos which show that that insects can have very extreme wing pitches and they can move their wings in figure of eight shapes and so on, all that to control the flow at very, very small scales. And yet those wings that they've got are pretty passive in themselves and a lot of the work is being done at the shoulder or being done in, in, you know, in, in the body, as it were. But ours wings aren't like that, so we have to generate that pitching movement you know the wing has got to shift forwards and it's got shift backwards as it pitches we have to do that mechanically that that involves things like you know rotational joints and so on and a very small scale and they can break right and it's very difficult to make something small and complex that flaps backwards and forwards at 100 times a second that doesn't break and that's still a challenge for us others have looked at this and they have their own solutions and of course we're looking at ours too mm -hmm. 
maybe if you question left, I want to ask you what other maybe question, maybe latest paper you still try to maybe answer here in the next uh, maybe few steps for in the field. I don't know what other question do you think you still want to answer here. Oh, the uh, for, for this work, I I'm really excited about 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 this this work, right? So the work we produced here shows artificial muscle-driven, electrostatic actuator-driven flapping wings. The wings are only part of the problem, right? You, you've got to be able to do something with it. And our wings exist on their own, but they don't have the body and they don't have the head and they don't have the power system on board and they don't have the computation and they don't have the control system. So it's one part of the puzzle we've got here. And so the next thing is to look at what are those other parts of the puzzles? And if I can list them on our fingers, there's there's power and power uh, requires a power source. Unless you're going to have your insect or, or MAV tethered, which is not really a good idea for an MAV. You want it to be autonomous. So it's got to have onboard power, which is a challenge because you've got, it's, you've got to have it lightweight. So what's the energy source you use? And you could use lithium polymer batteries and so on. So there's questions behind that. There's questions on the control and the electronics because we're talking about electrostatics, so high voltages. You need high voltage amplifiers. You need a way to turn battery level voltages of two or three or four or five volts up to two or three or four thousand volts. And that's it's a challenge, but we can do it. And then there's the control system. And we know that control of, of unsteady flow in micro air vehicles is an interesting challenge. So that's a, that's a nice one to look at. Um, and, and packaging all this up into something that is resilient, resilient and can move around in free space is that's 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 really exciting. And then the final challenge is take all that at maybe centimeter scale and make it millimeter scale. That's a really exciting challenge. So put we'll put all those together, and I think we've probably got another twenty years of work about it, maybe ten. Yeah, maybe I want to ask you what makes you fulfilled and satisfied. I think uh, maybe a research. In general, what makes you fulfilled and satisfied? What makes me fulfilled and satisfied? Well, actually, um, showing this kind of work to uh, people in the community and more broadly, and for them to look at it and say, yeah, that, you know, that is really interesting. And and to show the work that Tim and Majid and Chris have done in this area, right? They, they've put all the work into it. I just stand back and I look and I say, that's just excellent, right? And and to show them that that they have really produced something novel here. And then the next step is, of course, to take this forward. And what's going to happen next? You know, us as engineers, we look not just at what we're doing now, but what we're doing next. Uh, I think that's what sends us to sleep with a smile. Well, I hope it sends us to sleep with a smile on our faces. <laughs> Wonderful. I don't know if you have any final words like to say from the software world community, people listening. Any final words like that? I think flapping air vehicles and micro air vehicles is a really exciting area to work in. And we've, we've started this over the last few years. Uh, I think that there are some you know, amazing research groups working on this in the world. And I hope more people are going to work on this because it is a really exciting area that we haven't really got a hold of just yet. You know, there are so many insects in the world. There are so many flying things in the world, billions and billions of them. And how many robot flying things are there in the world is probably only a handful. So there's a long way to maybe go. Maybe a quick question. If there's any example in nature, very interesting to maybe still want one day to replicate example. I think the bumblebee is the most exciting. because they, they used to be 
uh, idea that um, that bumblebee, which is you know a big fat bee, for those who don't know, it's a big fat bee with with sh- quite short wings, and it looks like it shouldn't fly. And then lots of people thought about this, I you know, a cu- couple of decades ago, and said, "Oh no, the physics says it shouldn't fly." And I thought that was such a good thing that the the, the scientists looked at this insect and said, "Oh, it shouldn't fly." Um, but I think that's really exciting because it's dynamic, it's it's capable. It lives very successfully and it contributes to the environment by pollinating plants and so on. And yet it's just an exciting, interesting. Insect.